Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, I think there's still one or two on the welcome table. Love to have you follow along with us in God's Word this morning. We are continuing our, our brand new study through the book of Ephesians. Today we're looking at part three, actually finishing this kind of series of intro studies to Ephesians and our main text today, as it has been the last two weeks, Ephesians chapter one, verses one and two. Let's read those verses this morning as we get into our time. Ephesians chapter one, verse one, says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've been saying the last two weeks, it's, it, it is important for us to spend time looking at the background, the context, the purpose, so that we better understand what we're, we're going to be studying, what God would have to say to us, help provide us with the right perspective as we approach the, the scriptures we're going to be getting into in the book of Ephesians. And so far, we've looked at who the letter was written by, who it was written to. We've looked at what we know about the city of Ephesus, how the church in Ephesus got started, who these people uh, in the church of Ephesus were that that Paul is writing to. We've been seeing what they were saved out of, seeing how the Spirit of God was empowering them and equipping them in God's Word to take His Word as gospel throughout Asia Minor there in western Turkey how they renounced and repented of sinful and, and, and dark practices associated with their life before Christ saved them and how the name of Jesus was being magnified. Uh, the word of the Lord growing mightily and prevailing in that spiritually dark city of Ephesus. And not only did the word of the Lord grow mightily and prevail over the occult practices of the believers who had renounced and repented of those things, burned all their magical books, as we saw last week. We're going to see in our study today how the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing over the rampant idolatry that was taking place in Ephesus as well, but not without great opposition. And yet God was going to use that opposition to actually give the gospel greater freedom in that city and area. You know, we think about certain things that happen in our lives How in the world, God, could you ever take something that's this bad and bring about good? Ever thought that? I don't know. how, God, what could you ever do with this thing? And maybe it's not even something that happens to us. Maybe it's something that we've been a part of. We did it. We got ourselves into a mess. God, how could you ever, in your grace, redeem this thing? And yet when we let God get his hands on it, what God does We think about the early church, right? Jesus early on, right before his ascension. You're going to receive power from on high. You're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and all, uh, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and all the outer parts of the world. And then they were just kind of fine with being in Jerusalem. Just hang out here. Everything's great, right? And, And we're loving life and life's really good. And you just see the Lord and his... Grace going like, we got to do something about this because other people need to be reached with my gospel. And so here's Saul persecuting the church. And at the time, you know, for us, if we were in the midst of it, we were like, where are you, God? Why are you letting this happen? And, And 
These families are being drugged off to prison. It's like, but God used that to actually get these people out of their comfort zone, out of Jerusalem, and, and all of a sudden the gospel's going everywhere. And we could think the same thing with what is going to happen here in Ephesus. God, how could you use this? And yet, he did. He did. So, we started here. You can hold your place in Ephesians, because we're going to come back, okay, later. Turn with me to Acts 19, one last time. We're not going to be here for the whole time, I promise. Acts 19, we're going to start in verse 21. We're going to read uh, verse 21 and 22 uh, to begin. Probably help if I was in Acts. I was in Luke. Almost read Luke 19:21. You'd be all looking at me like I'm crazy, which I am, but that's besides the point. Luke 19. <laughs> no, not Luke. Sorry. Gosh, what's happening? God help me. Acts 19, verses 21 and 22. It's already going off the rails. Uh, when these things were accomplished... The word of the Lord growing mightily and prevailing there after everything that happened with the people coming, burning their books. Um, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, that's the area of Greece, to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So after this amazing work that God had done in the lives of those who came to faith in Jesus, repented of their occult practices publicly, both in confession and then in, in actually burning all of their magical books in the sight of all, it seems Paul you know, kind of sensed that his time in Ephesus was coming to an end, and so he began to plan. He began to purpose what he was going to do and where he was going to travel to next. Paul purposed in the spirit, which means to me that as Paul sought the Lord in prayer, there was this fixed determination that he was to do these things. He was to make these plans. Yeah, have you ever purposed, but it's not, it's really not rooted in the spirit of God? You just kind of, you made a plan. Got my plan. And then you start walking in that plan. And you're walking in that plan, you're like, Lord, I'm over here. Get on board my, with, with my plan. It's our plan, right, Lord? You somehow trick yourself into thinking it's really our plan. And God's like, that wasn't my plan. You purposed for you. That was in your mind. Maybe you prayed, potentially, but you just kind of, you had something in your head and you did it. Paul what a great example for us. He purposed in the Spirit. Everything about Paul's life was just bathed in prayer. He's seeking the Lord. God, what do you want? What's your desire? And, and his plans were never, and I'm sure that there was probably in Paul's heart, because he was just a regular guy. He's not, he's not a super saint. That there's probably things he had to wrestle through. God, is this of me? Is this, of, is this you? But you know what was the overriding thing for Paul? It was, it was Jesus. It's, it was the kingdom of the Lord. It was the proclamation of the gospel. It was, Lord, how can I reach people for you? 
How can your gospel get out even more? How can I love people with the love of Jesus? That, so when that overriding drive and passion of our life is, is Jesus and the things of Jesus, you know what happens to our purposing? They become in the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God is going, I got your, I got your priorities. When the Spirit of God has our priorities, it, it becomes so much easier to walk with confidence in what the Lord desires. Because he's weeding through the things of us. And the things of us come to the surface a little more clearly. Wow, Lord, that, that was you. Or that was me. Paul purposed in the spirit. Made these plans. What were his plans? Go through Greece. Not because he just wanted to sit on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Crystal clear water. Get a nice cup of OJ. Just sit there. Hang out, kick his feet up, have a little umbrella. Now he, he wanted to go through Greece because, as we know from other parts of the New Testament that provide some, some other background, Paul's heart was to gather financial gifts from the churches uh, there in Greece that he could then bring to the, the poverty-stricken believers in Jerusalem. And so after wanting to go to Jerusalem, though, Paul's heart was set on getting to Rome, where there was already a church that had been formed. And, and really, um, whether Paul realized it at this point or not, it's in Jerusalem he's going to be arrested. And it's, and it's his arrest and the, the chain of events after that that are actually going to eventually bring Paul to Rome as a prisoner at the end of the book of Acts. And with those plans in mind, Paul decides to send two of the guys ministering with him, Timothy and Erastus, into Macedonia ahead of him. But Paul actually stayed in Asia for a time even after this. In fact, from what Paul goes on to say in, he, in Acts chapter 20, when he's meeting with the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus, um, the total amount of time that Paul ministered in Ephesus was actually three years. It was like the longest that Paul uh, stayed put in one place. But what we're going to see here, as we continue on, that the repentance, the revival that we read about in the closing part of our study last week did not prevent opposition or hostility from rising up in a really big way. And so we're going to continue on and read the beginnings of this opposition in verse 23. It says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. At the end of Paul's three years of ministry in Ephesus, in verse 23, we're told this great commotion, great disturbance 
a great uproar uh, regarding the way happened. And the way there, as I've said before, is just was a reference to the, the early church, the early believers, and their message about Jesus, who, if you remember, called himself the way, the truth in life, right? So you love hearing some of the ways that the early believers were described like the way. What are you a part of? I'm a part of the way. Well, what way are you on? Well, I'm on the way because Jesus is the way. What an easy intro into like talking about Jesus, right? Like who started that? But pretty awesome. What we learn is that the uproar wasn't because the Christians and their message were troublesome. This is important for us to keep in mind. It wasn't because they were hate-filled. It wasn't because the believers were rebellious. It wasn't because they were contentious people who couldn't stand to be around the non-believers of of Ephesus. It wasn't because they were always speaking against the people and the city. No, none of those things were true of the believers in the city of Ephesus and definitely not true of the Apostle Paul. In, in, In fact, we read that Paul had befriended some of these um, officials who, when we look at the original Greek, these, these uh, officials being called Asiarchs, these were people, these were officials in the city who were involved with planning events and, and kind of being the administrative people for the imperial worship of Caesar because that became a big thing deifying Caesar, worshiping Caesar. And, and yet it says that these officials were Paul's friend. How do you become friends with people you don't believe the same thing with? Your lifestyle's completely different from. And yet Paul had this way by the grace of God to like befriend people that were, couldn't have been more different than him. And kept those Lines of communication, those avenues of friendship, those bridges open to bring the gospel. This uproar came about because of the economic and financial impact that resulted from people getting saved. What was happening? People were seeing the error of idol worship. They were no longer buying idols. They were no longer participating in the false worship system that used to be a major part of their lives before Jesus saved them. The the transformation of individual lives because of Jesus in Ephesus and no doubt the surrounding cities or areas in Asia Minor led to a noticeable decrease in the profit that had been coming to the idol makers and their industry. I don't want to like go on a huge sidetrack, but there are so many things in this world that make people a lot of money. The pornography industry is billions and billions of dollars. And you know what? If all of all of the believers, men and women, were to make a break from those things see that Jesus paid the price to set them free and walk in that freedom, what kind of noticeable decrease would happen to those that are profiting in pornography, sex trafficking, 
There's so many things that we could just bring out to go, what would happen? Believers were just, man, I'm gonna walk in holiness before you, God. I wanna walk right before you. I don't wanna be a part of those things that are of the darkness, those things that you paid, you shed your blood to set me free from. I don't, I'm a, Lord, I want by your power to walk in freedom. How many Demetriuses would there be there, would, would there be in this world that are just causing an uproar? Not because we're just like this contentious, like we're raising our fists at the unbeliever sort of thing, but we're just going, Lord, we're gonna live for you. And people just going, oh my gosh, like we're losing our jobs over this because we were making money off of people's sin. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, purify your church. This commotion started with this guy named Demetrius. He's a silversmith. What does he do? I make idols all day. Little shrines. Realized their trade was being affected as Paul preached Jesus. But I doubt that the false goddess Diana held much of a focus in Paul's preaching at all. Because Paul, as we see throughout the book of Acts and in his his epistles, he was much more concerned with and focused on exalting Jesus, who he is, how he wanted to save sinners, than he wasn't trying to put down any false God that the people might have found themselves believing in. And as Jesus was being magnified, the false gods were beginning to be despised, thought little of, deemed to be of no importance. In Ephesus, for a long time, it was Diana's name that was magnified, exaltation of a false deity. They believed it fallen from heaven, became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, led to false worship, rampant immorality, occult practices that fostered greater demonic activity and greater bondage to the enemy. But things began to shift as the name of the Lord Jesus and his gospel was being magnified, it was being proclaimed in the city of Ephesus as true worship began to take place towards the one true God. The power of Jesus touched and healed and delivered lives in the city of Ephesus. The gospel of Jesus was what was bringing about transformation in the city of Ephesus, change that was taking place as individual lives were being radically impacted by the love and gospel of Jesus. And that work spreading as those people told others about Jesus and other lives were saved and transformed. And and that just kept in a cycle, kept going. A, A radical work of the Spirit of God through the gospel of the Son of God in the lives of people who were being born again. And began wanting to live lives that honored and represented Jesus. Real change was happening. Not because of reformation. Not because of laws even being put in place. To help it be more moral. No, inward spiritual transformation. And this is the exact same way that Jesus is still wanting to work today. We're going to see in the next verses, Demetrius' speech is going to lead to a a mob being stirred up. So continuing in verse 28. 
Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. The first mention of a Honda in the, Old Test- in the New Testament. Ah! Oh, no, is right. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. When Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, these are those men I was speaking of, the Asiarchs, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. You know, had they found Paul, I don't doubt that he would have been killed by this mob once they got to the theater, which seated roughly 24,000 people at that time. Instead, these other two guys who were from Macedonia, who traveled with Paul, ministered alongside of Paul, they're grabbed. They're subjected to this mob frenzy. But though Paul wanted to go where all the people were at, <laughs> you imagine he's just like, just, I just want to get in there. Like, you know that they were looking for you, Paul, right? 24,000 people who are just out of their minds. Yeah, but I just wanted to preach Jesus to them. I got 24,000 people I can preach to right now. They're like, don't do it, Paul. Don't you do it. He wanted to go. The disciples, the believers of the church in Ephesus wouldn't allow him. Even some unbelievers, again, who Paul befriended, looked out for Paul's safety. They pleaded with him not to go into the theater And God used both the disciples in Ephesus and these pagan officials to keep Paul safe from harm as all the craziness was happening at the theater. And we continue in this account, verse 32. says, some therefore cried one thing and some another. For the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. Can you imagine? Some of them are like, Yeah, we want to get this Paul guy. And other guys are like, let's get the tournament going. Where are the food trucks? You know, it's like, no one knows why they're even there. Some are like shouting one thing. Some focus on another thing. It's just, this is how mobs are. Like, this is what happens when a mob frenzy takes place, right? Um, For the assembly was confused. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 33, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the the Ephesians. They just shouted the guy down. When the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar 
there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Uh, This whole situation was so crazy, so chaotic, so confusing. Most of them, again, didn't even know why they had come together at the theater. But this led the city clerk, who was really more like the mayor of Ephesus in his position, uh, quieting down the crowd, seeking to reason with the crowd that had gotten completely out of hand. He was able to do some investigating. He found and came to the conclusion that Gaius and Aristarchus hadn't messed with their temple hadn't stolen any idols, he hadn't blasphemed, or or they hadn't blasphemed or spoken against Diana. In other words, they hadn't done or said anything wrong. They shouldn't have been brought by the crowd and held there. He also made it clear that the only unlawful and illegal thing that was happening was this mob gathering. All the chaos and confusion that they had caused by their actions. This uproar was actually putting them all in danger in the eyes of the Roman Empire who would not look favorably on what had just happened and and could actually bring serious actions against them and the standing that Ephesus held in the eyes of Rome as a free city. And after saying all that, he dismissed the assembly, told them all, just go home. So in ways that only God could work, he used even this heavy opposition. I mean, it's pretty heavy. 24, potentially 24,000 people rushing through the city, just looking who they can grab. Who can, who can be hurt? Protecting Paul, even this heavy opposition to bring about a win for the believers so that really by the, by the decision of the city clerk, what really happened was he, he really gave the believers of the city of Ephesus sort of free reign to continue to openly preach Jesus without any fear of legal um, action, that they would be arrested. So this is, this is a big deal. But we see in verse 1 of chapter 20, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. With that, Paul's three years of ministry in Ephesus finished, finished with him calling the disciples to himself, wanting to see all of them, wanting to embrace them before heading off to start making his way towards Macedonia. I love that Paul didn't become jaded or closed off because of the stuff that happened. How easy it is for for us to shut our hearts to people. How, how would you feel if like 24,000 people were just like wanting to kill you in the city? You'd be like, this city stinks. I am never going back there. I don't care about these people. He's just like, come meet me. I'm about to leave. Hugs them all. Like, how long was that departure? Like, how many believers were in the city of Ephesus at that point? Paul just loved people. What a great example he is for us. But... Let's finish our intro here of Ephesians. You can turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Hopefully you held your place. If not, you got a little bit to find it. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at where Paul wrote this letter from and when he wrote it. Paul actually tells us twice in this letter that he was a prisoner. 
I'm a prisoner. And in another place in this letter, he says, I'm in chains. This isn't Paul, as some of the younger people would say, is like, has some drip. Like, he's got gold chains. I'm in chains. There's Paul behind the turntable. Not that. I'm literally a prisoner. He's not like, I feel like a prisoner mentally. Things are really hard right now. He's like, no, I'm literally in prison. I have chains. I'm shackled to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, when did this happen? The, the only solid conclusion that we can come to, scholars come to, is it, it, this was uh, in those two years of house arrest in Rome where, where Luke left off at the end of his account in the book of Acts. So uh, we'll put it up on the screen, but the last two verses of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, Luke records this. He says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. It was during those two years of house arrest in Rome, which we could think would be such a huge hindrance to ministry. Like, Let me get out. I'm stuck here in this house. How's the gospel going to get out in this sort of way? Where Paul really was forced to be in one place without being able to get out and about for long enough, where he wrote four powerfully impactful letters we would not have if he were not in prison. Writings that we call Paul's prison epistles, like Prison Mike, the Mentas. Paul's prison. I feel like you need to say with a like a New York sort of accent, right? Like Paul's prison epistles. That that's probably doesn't even sound like New York. But New York people are like, stop it. But these four letters, being Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and a, a letter to a man named Philemon, which we call Philemon. The date for Paul's first Roman imprisonment, which kind of helps us know when these writings took place, is believed to be around. A.D. 61 to 63, somewhere around there. This would mean roughly four to six years had passed since Paul left Ephesus, which we just read about in Acts 20, verse 1. Four to six years have passed after those three years with the church there. But, but clearly, as we're going to see in this letter, those four to six years of absence from the city of Ephesus and the people, the church there, did not dull his love, did not diminish his prayers, did not lessen his pastoral care for them or his desire to see them know and grow grow in and live for Jesus. And from Paul's closing greeting in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, we see that a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord named uh, Tychicus, and I'm just going to give you free reign with that name, I actually listened to how it's actually pronounced in the Greek, and I'm not going to do it. Is it just, it's like, tuhikos. Like, that's not how I read this in English. Tychicus, Tychicus, just do you with that one. This man who was a traveling companion of Paul's toward the end of his uh, third missionary journey, um, 
he was actually from Asia or Asia Minor, so it's possible that um, Tychicus actually may have even been from Ephesus originally, that the reason that Tychicus was even a believer was because he got saved through Paul's ministry. We find out about him, we see a mention actually in Acts 20 verse 4 as well as a, a couple of other epistles. But Tychicus was sent to the believers in Ephesus by Paul while he was in Rome to bring this letter, to tell how Paul was doing. But also Paul says in his uh, closing greeting, to comfort the hearts of the believers in Ephesus. Don't you just love that? Paul's a prisoner. He's in house arrest for two years. He's stuck there. And he's like, go comfort those guys. Comfort them. Because that's what I would do if I was there. I would seek to comfort. You just see this, again, pastoral care, but just like, what a, a, a selflessness. Because if I was Paul and I'm in house arrest, I'd just be complaining about why they're not seeking to comfort me. How come you guys haven't sent me a letter? Where's my letter? Where's my basket of goodies? He did get one, but it was from the church in Philippi, not from Ephesus. So, moving on though, let's look at why Paul wrote this letter. The tone of this letter is is different than Paul's two letters to the church in Corinth. If you've read those, you see that they were very much corrective in nature. Paul actually was writing in response to different things that he heard were going on in the church there in Corinth. Um, And there doesn't seem to be a specific doctrinal concern that Paul is addressing, like in his letter to the church in Colossae, where Paul is seeking to combat the Gnostic heresy that was starting to trickle into the church there. But he did that by by teaching, by exalting the supremacy of Christ. Instead, Paul, who, again, spent three years with these people, shepherding, teaching, loving, serving, being in their homes, shedding tears, as we find from Acts 20. A a short time after he had been with them, had had this sort of leadership conference with the elders of the church of Ephesus, where clearly they loved Paul, Paul loved them. He's now writing this well-rounded letter to them that is full of deep theology. It's going to make us think. It's going to cause us to press in. Full of rich spiritual truths and promises. Full of powerful, challenging, encouraging exhortations and practical application. It's a well-rounded letter that God has been using for almost 2,000 years to make his people, well-rounded believers spiritually and practically, both in Christ and for Christ. You know about you, but like, I could still, even this far into my Christian walk, go like, man, there's areas I would really love to see God do work in, in my life. I want to see God grow me here. God, I want to be less prideful. I want to be less selfish. God, I want to be more humble. I want to be more gracious. I want to be more loving. You, you see areas in your life where it's like the, that well-roundedness is like, it's not there. You're, maybe you, you fault on certain things and you're not strong in another area and you're going, God, I want you to just sort of make me the, the person that you've called me to be in Christ. 
May God do that through this letter in our lives. The book of Ephesians can be divided evenly. If you want to do like the, the most basic of outlines. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 3, deals predominantly with doctrine. We could say the calling of the church. The, the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, deal predominantly with application. The conduct of the church. Some people say chapters 1 through 3 deal with doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 deal with duty. And I wasn't going to say it because when we hear duty, sometimes we just become real childlike with that word. You know what I'm saying. Paul knew. (laughs) You're like, I'm not coming back to this church again. (laughs) This guy is so weird. How old is he, by the way? He's got gray hair, but he's acting like he's 15. Just, everyone, it's okay. Everybody chill out for a second. Goodness gracious. Yikes. You're like, Jared, you started it. You're, you're saying all of it. I'm not even saying anything. Paul knew, and it's important for us to know, that right doctrine affects and influences right living. Right doctrine affects and influences right living, that a solid foundation must be laid before walls can be built and a house can be lived in and furnished. And we as the church are that house that Jesus Christ is building with Jesus as our foundation, our chief cornerstone. God, through the pen of Paul, wants us firmly rooted in Christ wants us growing in Christ, and wants us fruitful for Christ. And guys, I pray he does that in each of us through the study of the book of Ephesians. Let's look, though, at the, what the key theme or themes or message of this letter is. This letter to the Ephesian believers is so well-rounded that it's actually hard to peg down just one central theme or one central message, because there are many themes, many areas that's, that Paul speaks into in this letter. Uh, Bible commentator Warren Wearsby saw a central theme being the believer's riches in Christ. That was like his, what he saw as he looked at the book, the believer's riches in Christ. He saw Ephesians 1.3 as the key verse of the book where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we can definitely see that theme playing out throughout Paul's le- uh, writing in this letter. Uh, Bible commentator John Stott saw a different central theme, being God's new society. We can definitely see that theme playing out throughout Paul's writing in this letter too. I, I, I really like how John Stott described what he saw as being the message of Ephesians. I want to show that to you because I think it'll be helpful for us to keep in mind as we make our way through Paul's letter in the coming weeks and months. And so um, I apologize that I tried to fit everything on one slide. Anybody bring binoculars? Did you know you could take a picture with your phone and it'll actually pick up the text on some phones? Anyways. Here we go. Strap strap yourself in. We're going to read. 
John Stott said this. We have one, I have one more slide after this. It's smaller, I promise. Just, again, relax for a second. Everything's fine. John Stott said, the letter focuses on what God did through the historical work of Jesus Christ and does through his spirit today in order to build his new society in the midst of the old. It tells how Jesus Christ shed his blood in a sacrificial death for sin, was then raised from death by the power of God and has been exalted above all competitors to the supreme place in both the universe and the church. More than that, we who are in Christ, organically united to him by faith, have ourselves shared in these great events. We have been raised from spiritual death, exalted to heaven, and seated with him there. We have also been reconciled to God and to each other. As a result, through Christ and in Christ, we are nothing less than God's new society, the single new humanity which he is creating and which includes Jews and Gentiles on equal terms. We are the family of God the Father, the body of Jesus Christ his Son, and the temple or dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are to demonstrate plainly and visibly by our new life the reality of this new thing which God has done. First, by the unity and diversity of our common life. Secondly, by the purity and love of our everyday behavior. Next, by the mutual submissiveness and care of our relationships at home. And lastly, by our stability in the fight against the principalities and powers of evil. Then, in the fullness of time, God's purpose of unification will be brought to completion under the headship of Jesus Christ. And he went on to say this, the whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must be and do in consequence. And its central theme is God's new society. What it is. How it came into being through Christ. How its origins and nature were revealed to Paul. How it grows through proclamation. How we are to live lives worthy of it. And how one day it will be consummated when Christ presents his bride, the church, to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such Thing, holy and without blemish. I just loved that description. It makes me even more excited to get into our studies in the coming weeks. But let's finish out this study by looking at verse 2, which we never did the last couple of weeks. We've just done verse 1 and then Acts 19, verse 1, 19. Okay. So, uh, but we're going to read both verses one more time. So Ephesians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever read something and you're just like, that's ah, just... Like a common thing. It's just like a common greeting. It feels so common to us, we just kind of like skip through it. Grace and peace. Yeah, he says it in all of his letters. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Except for in the pastoral epistles when he inserts mercy as well. Grace, mercy, and peace. 
you knew that pastors needed that extra bit of mercy inserted there, uh, just like I need this morning from all of you. Grace and peace aren't just Paul's customary greeting here as they are in all of his letters. This letter really is saturated with grace and peace, peace so much so that uh, John Stott said that grace and peace are the key words of Ephesians. Paul uses the word grace 12 times and the word peace seven times throughout this letter. In this letter, Paul tells us that it's according to the riches of God's grace that we have redemption through the blood of Christ and have forgiveness of sins. He tells us in this letter that we've been saved by grace. He tells us here in this letter that we are gifted for service by God's grace. And then, in this letter, Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of peace. Here in this letter, he says that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. He tells us in this letter that Jesus came and he preached peace, both to Jews and Gentiles. And tells us in this letter that we, as Jesus' people, as church, are to endeavor to do everything possible to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And who does that grace and peace come from? Who is it sourced in and flow freely from? Well, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter calls the Father the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Every bit of grace is found in the Father's possession. He's the God of all grace. It's who he is. And again, in this letter, Paul says that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. How many of you have come to God and just kind of seen grace and peace as this thing to be dispensed from a like a, a prayer machine? We come to him, we pop in our prayer. Okay, Lord, give me the grace. Oh, shoot, it's stuck. You're banging on the glass. You're that person. It's okay. Ask, seek, knock, right? We can get, get that shaking in the machine and even in our prayer life. We can come to him and go, Lord, give me some peace. I just need some peace right now. And Paul's going, yes, grace comes from him. Yes, peace, is, peace comes from him. But it's not just something he gives, it's who he is. Do we get that about God? He's the God of all grace. It's who he is. He himself is our peace. Peace isn't just something he gives to us from afar, from heaven. Like, here's the peace that you wanted. Oh, Lord, I dropped it. He is our peace. What do we need? It's him. What we need is him, not just what's, what comes from him. Lord, I need you. I just need you, Lord, because you're the God of all grace. You, you, you yourself are my peace. You are peace. And that order can never be reversed. Never do we find this order reversed. In any of Paul's writing, he never, he never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace. Why? Because a person cannot experience the peace of God 
before they first make peace with God. And no one can make peace with God apart from being saved by the grace of God. Grace first and then peace. Grace gives us access to peace. Isn't that an amazing thing? And what's grace? It's getting what you don't deserve. And so, Lord, everything that we don't deserve, Lord, would you give it anyways? And that's everything in our spiritual life. That's everything that's sort of presented to us in Scripture. We don't deserve any of it. Why? Because the only thing that we presented to the Lord, sin, unrighteousness, rebellion. Weird. Like, we're just, we can be weird. We're not always the most likable people. And he's like, hey, I want to give you my grace. I want to give you my peace. I want to, I want to save you. Well, what, what can I give to you, Lord, to get that salvation? Nothing. Nothing. It's got to be free. Otherwise, you would boast about it, that you had some part in it. And maybe this morning, for some of us, we're just, maybe as we kind of close this thing up, we're just going, Lord, I need a fresh work of your grace and peace in my life. Lord, I just need a fresh vision of you because if you're the God of all grace and you are if you yourself are our peace then Lord I just need a fresh vision to see you how you really are not to see you through my circumstances not to see you through my emotions about you what I kind of come up with but Lord who your word says that you are and who you've actually always been Lord, help me to see you. And Lord, would you just meet with my heart this morning? Because really, at the end of the day, what I need is just you. And maybe for some of us, as the worship team comes up, maybe there's somebody here today and you're just going, I've not made peace with God. Because I've never, I've never humbled myself before the Lord. I've never repented of my sin. I've never asked Jesus to be my Savior. All that can change in a moment. You know what that moment is? It's now. The Bible always talks about salvation in the present tense uh, for, for someone to make a decision for the Lord. It's always now. It's not later. Now is the time of salvation. And maybe that's someone here today, and you're going, look, like I, I want to be saved. I want this God of all grace. I want the peace of Jesus in my life because I am not at peace. That is not how I would describe myself. That's not how anybody else would describe me. That's not me. And you need to make peace with God this morning if that's you. And the only thing you have to do is open your heart up to the Lord. Pride is just going to keep God at arm's length. So we humble ourselves. We go, I'm a sinner. And that, that's an important first step, right? I'm a sinner. And when I recognize that I'm a sinner, then I go, oh my gosh, I need a savior. 
And scripture points us to the Savior who entered into humanity, became flesh, dwelt among us, lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live, and then went to a Roman cross where he was nailed there and he, and he was tortured and, and his blood flowed so that you and I could be saved. And we can look to him and find salvation. We can go, Lord, take all my sin. And when in return, would you give me all of yourself? Give me your salvation. Give me your righteousness. Make me new. And that opportunity is for you, if that's you today. And so if that is you, would you just raise your hand where you're at? And you're going, that's me this morning. I know everybody's eyes are open. I'm doing this on purpose. Not to embarrass you. We want to celebrate with you. This could be the greatest day of your entire life. This could be the start of a brand new life in Christ. All the old things passing away, everything becoming new, Scripture says. But you've got to humble yourself first. Is that you? I just Is that somebody today? Kind of get that sense that there's just somebody here and you're going, that's me. And I need to make that decision for Jesus. And maybe, maybe for you today, maybe what I'm sensing is not, not someone even needing to, to be saved as much as, you know what? You've gotten caught up with other things and this morning the Lord's going, come back. Come back, you've gotten off track. The reason why you are lacking in grace and lacking in peace is not because those things aren't available to you anymore. But those things are found at the place of being in a right relationship with the Lord. And if that's you, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you today? Would you go, that's me. Lord, I need to come back. I've wandered. Lord, would you just meet me where I'm at? Anybody here? Let's pray today. Lord God, you know, Lord, what I'm sensing, what your spirit may be speaking, maybe there's just a, a fear, a timidity even on the part of somebody. They wanted to raise their hand, but they just didn't. Lord, you see them. You know them. You love them. And this morning, Lord God, you're calling them to come. To come to you, to come in humility, to come in repentance, to come in surrender. And whether that's you needing to make a decision for Jesus for the first time or needing to recommit your life to him, I just encourage you in your heart just to call out to the Lord. The God of all grace is near. The one who is our peace is near. Don't leave this place walking out the way that you came in. And Lord, for the rest of us, maybe just needing a fresh work of your grace in our lives, Lord, would you do that this morning? Lord, would you draw near to us, draw us near to you? Lord God, would you fill us afresh with your spirit? Lord, would you, um, God, minister your grace and your peace to our hearts, Lord God, as just we uh, as we look to you, Lord, as we focus upon you. 
God, make us those well-rounded believers, God, who are being transformed by the Spirit of God. Lord, we commit the rest of our time to you, communion, having prayer offered in the back if anyone needs prayer, this time of praise, Lord, that we just continue to press into you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.